One of the things that I appreciate about this time of year, in particular the spring and summer evenings, is as the sun goes down, you get some relief from the heat, and as the bats come out, you get relief from the bugs. Now, contrary to popular belief, we're going to talk about bats for just a minute. Contrary to popular belief, bats are actually not blind. They're not. They can see. Now, that said, it's not to say that uh, they can just open up their eyes in the cave and boom, there's a bug, and they're off and, and flying towards it. Uh, they have been designed, and therein they operate with what is referred to as a, a system of echolocation, which means they send out these supersonic screeches that then bounce off the, the environment and different objects around them that then help them determine where it is that they need to go, how far, how fast, and what direction and all of that. But again, I, can't, I cannot say this strongly enough, bats are not blind. They can see. And in fact, they may be able to see better than many of us in this room, considering the number of people I see wearing glasses, the fact that I myself am wearing contacts and have to wear cheaters just to read the text here in just a few minutes. Uh, they may well be able to see better than many of us. Many, like myself, I'm, I'm nearsighted. I'm, I'm nearsighted. I just, I cannot see but so far. I cannot take in but so much around me. It's just a fact. It's a physical fact of my, my uh, visual sensory limitations. And all of that reality points me to a larger, deeper reality. Our spiritual sight, our spiritual nearsightedness, our inability to take in but so much. In fact, the fact is we take in but so little. If you have a Bible, I'd ask you to turn with me to Matthew 21. Matthew 21, we're going to pick up where we were, uh, pick up where we were from last week uh, in that same chapter. Matthew 21, uh, it's going to be on the screen uh, there behind me. It's, if you want to look it up in your Bible, that's the first of the Gospels, first of the books in the New Testament, Matthew 21, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. This is a parable. It's a story that Jesus is telling. We're going to talk about it, look at it. Matthew 21, starting in verse 33. Matthew 21, starting in verse 33. We're going to read on through verse 46. That's the end of that chapter. Matthew 21, verses 33 through 46. Hear now God's word. Hear another parable. There was a master of a house who planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a wine press in it and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. When the season for fruit drew near, he sent his servants to the tenants to get his fruit. And the tenants took his servants and beat one, killed another, and stoned another. Again, he sent other servants more than the first, and they did the same to them. Finally, he sent his son to them, saying, They will respect my son. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to themselves, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him and have his inheritance. And they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. When, therefore, the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? They said to him, He will put those wretches to a miserable death and let out the vineyard to other tenants who will give him the fruits in their seasons. Jesus said to them, have you never read in the scriptures? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. 
Therefore, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits. And the one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces, and when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. When the chief priests and the Pharisees heard his parables, they perceived that he was speaking about them. And although they were seeking to arrest him, they feared the crowds because they held him to be a prophet. Let's pray. Lord, would you please put us there? Put us there in the crowd, listening, observing, wondering, waiting, watching, hearing, perhaps even this story for the very first time. And even if it's not the first time for some of us here, may it be as though it was because of the the tilling of the soil of our hearts. You're taking the spade and going down deeper, 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 deeper. Oh, that we would see. Oh, that we would hear. Oh, that we would understand. Oh, that you would speak. Oh, that our lives would be changed. Oh, that we would not be the same as we walked into this place. Oh, that we would learn what it is to be your followers, your people, your disciples. The joy of that, the wonder of that, the responsibility, the expectations, the demands, enabling grace, all of of that. Oh, would you help us? You the one, oh Jesus, you the one, the master storyteller, Would you tell the story to us today? Pray in your name. Amen. This past week was the 75th anniversary of D-Day, the Allied invasion of France during World War II. I'm sure many of you know that was not the end of the war, but historians are wise to point out it was certainly the beginning of the end of the war. I want to share some, uh, some numbers with you. Vast scale numbers, waves of things that had to happen for the waves of those soldiers uh, as they went ashore for that invasion to be successful. Within the first few hours of the invasions, the Allies had landed more than 160,000 troops in Normandy. But that was preceded by a wave of 10,521 combat aircraft and some 13,000 paratroopers. That was preceded by roughly 2,200 Allied bombers. Can you imagine how many that is filling the skies? Dropping some 7 million pounds of bombs. And that was preceded by some 3,200 reconnaissance missions sent to take photos of the landing zone. And you might be thinking, well, that just seems like overkill. Why so much trouble? Why wave upon wave upon wave to you know, make the next thing, the next thing, the next thing successful? Well, it was because it was just absolutely vital. It was absolutely vital that the leaders and, and the strategy makers of this invasion would be able to take in, that they would be able to look at, that they would be able to know what it is that they would be facing, that they were moving towards. 
And that was needed, and it was certainly did prove to be the case, to shape their strategy as they move forward. Well, this morning, we're not looking at a landscape, but we are looking at something that needs to shape us, and that is God and His ways. God and His ways and the shaping effect that that should have upon our lives as we look at it, as we consider the wonder of these things. Now, the context of this story, talked about this last few weeks because of this you know, one as part of this larger conversation, this discussion that Jesus is having, this is the second of a series of parables that Jesus tells. The context is a challenge that takes place there in the temple courts to Jesus' authority, a challenge. And he responds by making absolutely clear that indeed he is the rightful king, he is the king of the kings, the one in fact, though they don't understand it, the one in fact that they have been waiting for all this time. To press in on that, he tells them, some parables, some stories. Last week, we looked at one of them, the parable of the two sons, whereby Jesus gives some insight, even if they couldn't hear it, some insight into the men who are challenging him in that moment and the opposition, the heart that's driving that opposition. That's the parable of the two sons. That's then followed by the story we just read. We're going to drill into for a few minutes together now, this parable of the tenants, where he gives us not just insight into the men who are challenging him, but insight into the nation, insight into their history, insight into their heritage. It's a big 10,000 feet picture panoramic view that Jesus is about to give in this story. And in so doing, he points out something that's just, just so striking, so stunning, but something that we need to hear. God's ways with his people are a marvel to behold. God's ways with his people are a marvel to behold. We need to consider them. We need to consider them. We need to weigh them and let them shape us. His ways with his people are a marvel to behold. We need to consider them, weigh them, and let them shape us. Okay, that said, fine. What are these ways? What are these things that, that apparently show up, that at least I'm saying show up, in this passage, the wonder of his ways, that we need to be weighing, that we need to be considering. Three, it's there in your outline, at least these three. And this is just a sampling from this, you know, as we see from this parable. One, his provision given. What are the impact? What's the, what was the implications of that for our lives as we think about that? His provision given. Second, his patience exhausted. That's worth looking at. And then thirdly, finally, his purposes assured. So his provision, his patience, and his purposes. Let's look at this together in turn. So the, his provision given, his generosity, his great, overflowing, overwhelming generosity. You see it in verses 33 through 34 as we just think about the landowner, the master of this house. Here another parable. There was a master of a house who planted a vineyard, put a fence around it, dug a wine press in it, and built a tower and leased it to the tenants, went into another country. When the season for fruit drew near, he sent his servants to the tenants to get his fruit. You need to understand that in the ancient world, even more so than today, to build a vineyard was a big-time, long-term investment. So this man, this master of this house, is clearly a man of means. He is an absentee landlord. That's something that was becoming more and more uh, predominant, I guess you could say, in that time in, in the Roman world. And he has done everything needed for the production of fruit 
in this vineyard. He's done all that he can. He's left no, metaphorically, no stone unturned, provided all that needed to be provided, given all that needed to be given, and this is exactly what the Lord had done for his people over the course of centuries. If you want to turn with me back to the book of Isaiah, keep your thumb there in Matthew 21, but the book of Isaiah, now if you're trying to find that, that's the, really the first of the prophetic books in the Old Testament after the wisdom literature, Proverbs, excuse me, Psalms and then Proverbs, and Ecclesiastes and Song of Solomon. You have Isaiah, Isaiah 5. Listen to what Isaiah says here in verses 1 and 2. Let me sing for my beloved my love song concerning his vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He dug it and cleared it of stones and planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it and hewed out a wine vat in it. And he looked for it to yield grapes, but it yielded wild grapes. Sound familiar? Yeah, there's a reason. Jesus is using that imagery in this parable with great intentionality. His hearers would have, you know, latched on to this. Well, what is it that the Lord had provided? How had the master of this house, this, the, uh, the owner of this vineyard, provided for his people in a metaphorical, symbolic sense? Well, you want to think in terms of prophet, priests, and kings? That's partly what he'd given them, or if you want to go another direction, his, the land he had provided, his law, his love, his promises, his presence, his protection, his guidance, the warnings, the security, his, their identity in him, all of these things, rich, rich things that he had provided for them. And not just, it's not that this was a one-shot deal, this is over time, a long period of time. Many overtures that he made towards them, these loving initiatives that he made towards them, calling Abraham out the way that he did, bringing the people, rescuing, redeeming the people out of slavery, out of bondage, the, the great exodus that we read about in the book of Exodus, the great salvation event of the Old Testament. As those initiatives weren't enough, these reminders, reminders, continual reminders, especially as they went astray, as they forgot as they forgot who and whose and how and why they were who and whose they were, he would move towards them again and again and again through the the age of the patriarchs and the exodus and the, the time of the judges and the monarchy and the division of the kingdom and the, and the time of the exiles. And then the return, all of this, over this whole span of time, his great provision was given and just, just abundant provision was given great care over a long, long period of time. This is an epic tale. This is not a short story. This is an epic tale that his people then and in Jesus' day and right here at this moment, we need to look up towards, look back towards time and again, that we would see the the full expanse of his love and the full extent in which he has provided for us as people. And as we do that, some remarkable things happen. Hearts filled and stilled with wonder. Thoughts transformed, moved from a sense of entitlement to a sense of gratitude that he would write us into this story in any way at all. 
lives shaped, marked by humility. That we know ourselves increasingly actually to not be the center of everything. That there's a whole lot more going on than just us. Again, God's ways are a marvel for us to behold and how we do need to behold them, consider them, and let them shape us. Well, that takes us to the second point. This is not just an epic tale. It is a tragic one as well. It is a tragic one as well. Let's pick it up where we left off in verse 35. And the tenants took his servants and beat one, killed another, and stoned another. Again, he sent other servants, more than the first, And they did the same to them. Finally, he sent his son to them, saying, they will respect my son. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to themselves, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him and have his inheritance. They took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. When therefore the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? They said to him, he will put those wretches to a miserable death and let out the vineyard to other tenants who will give them the fruits in their seasons. Jesus said to them, Have you never read in the Scriptures the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone? This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits. And the one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces, and when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. So this is a story of provision given and patience exhausted. Let's take a look. Let's unpack for a moment this uh, foolish rejection, as you see Jesus painting forth, putting before us here both in the story and his explanation of the story. Let's start with the servants. So it seems what Jesus has in mind here is is something akin to what's going on there in in those days is what the people would have understood. Jesus makes mention of the landowner and the tenants and, and all of this that rent would have been paid through a portion of the fruits of the vineyard. That would have been the deal. But for whatever reason, these tenants refused to pay. Jesus seems to be pointing towards the fact that this is exactly what was the experience of the Old Testament prophets. That's what he seems to have in mind with the the servants that were sent, one wave after another wave, and, and, and how they were received, if you will, by the tenants. So, the master sends his son. And, of course, you know, the story is very plain and very uh, stark and tragic about how the tenants respond to the son. It seems what's going on there is likely they assume with the arrival of the son, they're, they're imputing or inferring from that that, oh, the master, the one who owns this whole thing, must be dead, so he's the final heir. If we knock him off, it's all ours. The vineyard, the land is ours. And it doesn't take much. It's hardly a stretch at all to see that this is Jesus. Jesus is the Son being referred to here. And certainly, not very few, really no one would have grasped that in the moment while Jesus is telling the story. But in the weeks and months and years to come, his followers grabbed on that and recognized, oh my gosh, that's what he was talking about. That's what he was talking about, and who? Well, then Jesus, as he unpacks and explains the story, after he asks that question, what do you you think is going to happen now? And he dangles the bait there in front of his hearers, and they grab it, and now they're hooked. And so then he begins to explain this story, and he shifts the imagery from a a group of servants to a son to a stone. 
It's as though what he's saying is imagine a group of masons out at a rock quarry. And they're, they're looking for the, the right stone for, to, to finish off this building project that is there before them. And so they pick up one after another, they're examining, turning, testing, one at a time. And they come upon just the right one, the one they need. And they throw it down, reject it, and move on to another. And that's exactly what is happening at the moment that Jesus tells the story. That's exactly what is happening in that very moment, this foolish rejection, which then sets in motion a coming reversal. This is a pattern, this pattern of rejection and reversal, rejection and reversal. And this is just one more, but this is the most climactic example of it. Jesus alludes to this in verse 42. Jesus said to them, have you never read in the scripture? So he's hearkening back. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. He is quoting here from Psalm 118. If you go back and read Psalm 118, it seems that what the, who the psalmist and what the psalmist and who the psalmist is referring to there is how the nations in the ancient Near East had just looked upon little Israel and said, rejected it. Worthless little, little people. And this is also partly David, King David's experience as well, early on in his, his career, if you will, as he was overlooked time and time again. Oh, just this little this kid. I mean, come on. Thought so little of, and now we see it's coming about again with this sun, with the stone, this recurring pattern, pattern with dire consequences. Dire consequences on the other side of this pattern. Verse 43, therefore I tell you, you know, in the wake of that, as a consequence of that, therefore I tell you the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits. What's going on here? Jesus is referring to the nation of Israel and their leaders who had failed in their mission, failed to receive, failed to embrace the Messiah, their king. And as a consequence of that, the nation, the kingdom was being taken from them and given to another. A new nation, a new people would be created from many nations, many peoples. This is a reference to the church. A nation, a people that has no barriers, no boundaries, no borders, that is ever expanding, marching forward. That's what Jesus is talking about here. And all of this, all of this is about this pattern of rejection that sets in motion a reversal because God's patience has been exhausted. Now, what do we do with that in terms of application? Do we just skip it? Thinking about the tenants and their response to the generosity of the master? seem to be a dangerous response, presumptuous on our part. What do we do with that? What would be wrong to do would to, to be to think that this is about losing something that we had. Rather, this is about asking the question, do we actually have it in the first place? Are you a follower of Jesus or not? 
Are you a member, a part of this people, this nation that knows no boundaries, no barriers, no borders, that is in fact advancing? Or come back at another way. Put yourself at the quarry. You're there with the other Masons. You're all there together. We're all there together looking at the stones and you see one. You see the foundation stone. The one that you to build your life upon. Are you throwing it to the ground? Are you rejecting it and moving on? Who is your foundation stone or what? That's the question that begs, demands to be asked and wrestled with at this point as we think about the tenants and their foolish rejection of the generosity of the master. I said a moment ago that the the, the generosity of the master is the context of the story. That's the context of reality. The generosity of the master towards us. What is our response? What is our response? That takes us to the third point. This is not just an epic story. It's not just a tragic story. It's also not the end of the story. It doesn't just end with tragedy, with a, with a downer note. If you just think about it. Wow, Jesus says there is so much more. Verses 42 and 43, I'm going to read them again. Have you never read in the Scriptures? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing. And it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits. You see, there is an upper here. It's not just a downer. It picks up if, if we have but ears to hear and eyes to see. This, what, everything that Jesus is talking about here, he, he, it's, not, it's, not just, it's not just his, uh, his gracious provision and the patience exhausted, but its purposes, his purposes assured. This was just, everything that Jesus is talking about here is just as was prophesied, just as was purposed. This is not just something that happened. It's not as though this came as a bolt out of the blue, as a shock out of nowhere, but rather this is something that was planned and known and prepared for. If you go back to Psalm 118, that's the psalm that Jesus is quoting there. Uh, the, talks about the stone and the builders and all of that. If you read the full context of what Jesus is quoting there, which he, of course, knew, and his hearers knew it too, if you read one verse, Psalm 118, verse 24, past what he's quoting, here's what it says. This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. This is something that was the Lord's doing that is meant to be marvelous in our eyes. This is something prophesied. This is what he has in mind. The Lord's purposes is the producing of fruit. The producing of, of fruit. What, after all, is the purpose of a vineyard? What is the purpose of a vineyard? To take up space? To produce fruit? It's, it's, of course, uh, just understood as far as just what it would have to be. Again, Jesus says, the stone, excuse me, the verse 43, therefore I tell you the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruit. That's actually the crux of the whole parable. 
The whole story, this whole thing, or going back to Isaiah, I read verses, uh, chapter 5, verses 1 and 2. If you go back and read a little bit further in chapter 5, verse 4, what more was there for me, what more was there to do for my vineyard that I have not done in it? When I looked for it to yield grapes, why did it yield wild grapes? Or skipping down to verse 7, for the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah are his pleasant planting. And he looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed, for righteousness, but behold, an outcry. Oh, all right, then what, is, what kind of fruit is he looking for? And if we speak in terms of the assurance of his purposes, then what kind of fruit are we assured that he's going to bring forth from in and through us? Inner moral change, heart renewal and reformation. A, something that's happening deep within, but is also observable on the outside. Paul in Galatians 5 speaks of the fruit of the Spirit, helping us to understand where and from whom this comes. This is a fruit, a transformation that reproduces itself, as, as happens in a vineyard reproduces itself in the lives of, of other, the people around us as they are touched and transformed by the work of God and the, the effect and the power of the gospel in their lives as we are rubbing shoulders with them. So it's, it's reproducing itself in the lives of others and in the places that we live. And this is exactly what our Lord has in mind. And it's happening all the time in so many different ways in his people and through his people, through his disciples. The, the point simply being this, fruit is coming. And that's a testimony to God's purposes being assured. You have his provision given, his patience exhausted, and his purposes guaranteed and assured. read to you this first few lines of an article I came across this past week from USA Today. Behold the new black gold. Dark and warm, it oozes water and teems with beneficial properties. It even harbors precious metals, and boy, does it stink. Call it the excrement economy. Between the rise of fecal transplants and water strained from latrine sludge, the poop market is hot. Besides removing toxic waste, the commodification of... Now, I just... I don't know if I can read this word. The commodification of... It, it, it rhymes with trap or clap. You fill in the blank, the blank. Could mean big bucks, especially in the developing world. The excrement economy, as you go on and read this article, could save lives. The science could save lives, could enhance fertilizer out there in farms all across this world, broaden our food supply and even our water supply, if you can imagine that. It's the ultimate wonder from waste scenario, the ultimate uh, treasure from trash uh, idea. And it's also a pretty good illustration of the Lord's amazing ability to bring good from evil. To bring good from evil. 
and how he is able to take the ugliest, the ugliest in our lives, in this world, the absolute ugliest, and make it something beautiful, something truly life-transformative and life-giving. Think about how that plays itself out in just our everyday lives. You're on the receiving end of some really harsh criticism. And that may kill you. But it can also be used in his hands to help you understand where your real identity and security is. Not in yourself and not even in that person speaking to you or your performance that led to what they said. But in Jesus. Or a debilitating illness that may stay with you all your life and knocks you to the ground and has upended all your plans and your hopes and your dreams. That in his hands can point you towards real strength and not just this temporal existence, but eternity. He can take the ugliest and turn it into something beautiful. How about the worst of all? The greatest injustice in the history of this world. The trial and crucifixion of Jesus. The greatest injustice this world has ever known. And it is our means of hope and salvation. Yeah, he can take the ugliest and make it into something absolutely beautiful. How many of us need to be reminded of that this morning? God's ways with his people are a marvel to behold. How we do need to consider them and let them shape us. There's such a long list of things that we we could go down and I'm going to just abbreviate it in terms of things that we could consider that have shaping power. From an historical standpoint, take a big little survey here. So Lewis and Clark, the core of discovery, pushing on through the, the West. Can you imagine what it felt like when they saw, finally saw the Pacific Ocean? Can you imagine what that felt like, what that did to their souls when they finally saw that big blue expanse? Or put yourself with the crew of Columbus, the Nina, the Pinta, and the Santa Maria. I had to look that up. I couldn't remember. You're you're among the crew, and you're on the decks of one of those ships, and you finally see the new world for the first time. What's that do to you? Do you forget that? Do you forget that experience? Or, Or you may have heard this past week that NASA is now given the green light. If you've got the cash, you can be a tourist on the International Space Station. Sign me up. Um, I need a grant. Uh, but, but to a person, folks who have that experience of any kind through, through the years, it is transformative as they look down and see their home for the first time from orbit. Or just let's get off the dramatic in the story. Let's just do it every day for a minute. So do you remember what it was like when you got your first job and your first check? 
or when you held your driver's license for the first time, or when you moved away from home and how different that felt, scary, exciting, really awesome, really cool, crazy. I remember what it was like when I saw my bride turn the corner on our wedding day, seeing her in that beautiful gown, how that fell over. A, couple of, a few years after that, I'm looking at a picture of an ultrasound image of our child. A few months after that, I'm holding the, the hand of that child in mine. This stuff stays with you. You're not the same. You're changed. These things shape you. Now, how much more as we grapple and consider the ways of our God? The ways of our God with us, his people. How much more? Not dismissing those things in any way at all. I'm putting an exclamation point on those things. But bold face and italics and highlighting how much more as we consider and weigh and grapple with the ways of our God with us, his people. We need it. Let's pray together. Lord, thank you for these few minutes that we've had to stop and to listen, to consider, and we pray that it would have a shaping effect or at least begin to or continue on. There are uh, uh, a list of different needs, as many needs as there are people in this room at least. Some of us need to grapple and hear and consider the wonder of your provision, what you have done and what, at what a cost and how you call us to be stewards. We have so much. You call us to be wise stewards of it all. Some of us here need to be reminded of the patience that you have that does have actually a limit and to be sobered by that and to not presume upon your grace and your mercy that the living God will not be mocked. Some of us need to be reminded this morning of your purposes that cannot be thwarted and we have the greatest of assurances, great grounds for comfort this morning and courage and hope. Oh, would you bring forth the fruit you intend in our lives? Bring it forth in us. Bring it forth through us, we pray. In your name, amen. We will now worship the Lord with.